Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Jean D. Bernardi. Jean is Professor of Anthropology at the University of Alberta. She's written a huge amount over her career about religion and other aspects of ethnography in Southeast Asia. Today, we're talking to Jean about her wonderful new book, Christian Circulations, Global Christianity and the Local Church in Penang and Singapore, 1819 to 2000. It's just been published by uh, NUS Press Singapore 2020. Jean, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to participate. It's great to have you here. Um, Before we begin to talk about this really wonderful new book, Christian Circulations, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, I'm a cultural anthropologist. I grew up in California um, as a member of a Catholic church. I think I should add that since I write a lot about religion, who actually became a lapsed Catholic at the age of 17. Um, I went to Stanford University and decided when... Um, I came to choose my major, to major in anthropology, and also to study Chinese society and culture. Stanford was very good for Asian studies in those days. It still is. And so there were lots of courses for me to take. Uh, so I went to graduated and studied with um, Morris Friedman, who was a specialist in overseas Chinese, and then went to University of Chicago to do my PhD. So at the time I was doing my doctoral research, China was closed to foreign researchers, to anthropological research. So I followed in the footsteps of my um, teachers and studied Chinese in Southeast Asia. Uh, My main interest was Chinese religion. This was the 60s and Chinese religion was a thing. (laughs) And so I went to Malaysia with with uh, pretty excellent funding and spent two years there. Um, while I was there, I learned what I thought was a dialect of Chinese, which is Southern Min, Minanhua or Hokkien. And I employed as a research assistant um, a Christian uh, named Shirley Chung, who was a graduate of the Methodist Girls School. And she had just amazing linguistic skills. She she knew Chinese uh, characters, um, and she knew what's called the deep vocabulary of Southern Min, which is literary vocabulary. She was also really good in English and just a super nice person. But I was studying traditional Chinese religion. I was studying spirit mediums and festivals, um, but... She invited me to her church frequently, and um, I became very interested in them. Uh, they, <laughs> their name was the Charismatic Church of Penang, and her great uncle was the leader and founder of this church. And they met in a seaside bungalow that was very beautiful, facing a palace uh, that was owned by the Sultan of Kedah. So a very romantic setting, you know, tree-filled compound and etc. Um, so as I was leaving Penang, I thought, well, why didn't I study the Charismatic Church of Penang? Here I had all these really good relationships with people there. Um, including her great uncle, who 
actually, while I was there, published a translation of one of his books called uh, Ancient Chinese Stories with a Modern Message. Uh, and he asked me to write a foreword to it. And I was very apprehensive because Christian I was not. I was studying <laughs> Buddhists and Taoists and everything but Christianity. But I read the book and I was really fascinated. So um, anyway, so I, I got back to studying Christianity in the 1990s. Should I stop there or continue? Uh, well, this is great, Jean. This is wonderful. Okay. So, um, <laughs> you, I mean, you, you, you've been writing about religion in Southeast Asia for a long time, as, as you just mentioned. How does the, the present book, Christian Circulations, fit into that earlier or larger, I should say, project of study? Um, I would say I, I've published two books on Chinese religion. So based on the doctoral research that I did very much with Shirley's assistance, she uh, did some very important interviews with me. Um, I published two books, and one of them focused on religion and ethnic politics. And I wrote about three festivals that I thought the immigrant Chinese community in Malaysia uh, focused on as they sought to... Um, maintain a sense of unity and identity in the face of ethnic politics. So probably people don't know very much about Malaysia, but Malaysia was a British colony. And in particular, Penang was one of the straight settlements, Penang and Singapore together. They were governed separately for a time. They were a crown colony like Hong Kong was. And, um, after World War II, however, uh, of course, the Japanese occupied Malaysia and Singapore in 1941, and the British uh, evacuated. Some of the missionaries at that time were, were put into detention for three more than three years. Um, but after World War II, the British returned, but the colonial era was over. So Malaysia established a, a new state. Um, and they did adopt a kind of ethnic formula for nationality, which meant that the Malay language, um, Islam, um, and for Malays, cultural identity were the core of Malay identity and also somehow <laughs> part of the fabric of the nation. Um, and this very much uh, marginalized Christianity. So on the one hand, Chinese were turning to popular religion as a, a focus of identity building projects and unity building projects. Um, okay, we'll put Christianity to the side for the moment. Um, and so that was that was really the focus of one of my books. Um, I have to say, when I was doing my research, I, I was very interested in stories of the gods. This was the era of structuralism. And people there said, do you see how pe what's happening to us here? That's much more important. You really should be writing about that. So that did determine where I finally focused that first book. The second book was on spirit mediums, and it was more about the everyday practices of Chinese popular religion, how they addressed adversity in their lives, what people did if they faced a problem, so how they prayed, uh, what kind of offerings they made to their gods. Um, I, I don't think I want to go into spirit mediums in great detail, but uh, but it was a, a very different aspect of, of the research, very much close to people's everyday practice of religion, not so much politically connected. Mm. And that's something that you've written about. I think I read one of your articles recently where you talk about spirit mediums in connection with the Brethren movement or with other forms of popular Protestant piety uh, in, the, in this area, uh, to give a little plug to the Brethren Historical Review. Um, but the, you, you have this you have this wonderful title, Christian Circulations, Gene, and it really captures the, the swirl of ideas and practices and performances that, that are being put on 
moving around and you know coming together in all kinds of interesting ways, um, sometimes problematic ways. But the book itself is is framed around the experience of the brethren community in Penang and Singapore, isn't it? Uh, it begins with the brethren and it ends very much in that direction too. So can I ask how you got from your conversations with Shirley and the Charismatic Church of Penang to uh, to this focus, to, to, to the, we might say, denominational focus that lies at the heart of this book? Mm. Well, in 1995, I think, no, excuse me, 1993, I got funding to do a research project on multiracialism and um, multiculturalism in Singapore, uh, Malaysia, and Thailand. And at that time, I realized that there was a very strong tie-in between ethnicity and race or ethnicity and culture in Southeast Asia and all these countries. But the Christians were really the exception. So I decided I was going to do a research project on Christianity. And sort of taking Elder Tay's book, uh, Ancient Chinese Stories is a modern, <laughs> with a Modern Message, I thought this is an interesting syncretism of modernity and tradition, of tri- Chinese tradition and Christianity. So maybe I could look at syncretism. In the first book, I looked at all seemed to suggest that there was something called an Asian theology that was emerging and that that was quite interesting. So I got funding to do a research project on that. In the process, I wanted to learn more about Shirley's church underlying agenda, right? Not revealed in my grant applications. And so when I, so when I went back, I discovered that they had come out of the Brethren movement and that her great uncle actually had been an elder in the Burma Road Gospel Hall for many years. Uh, his nephew was the leader of something called the, Char- the Church of Singapore, which was a very major church in Singapore, independent uh, charismatic church. Uh, and he also had, and his followers had also come out of the Brethren movement. So I decided to make uh, that one focus for my study. Um, so the study was very broad, actually, at the beginning. I looked at many different um, religious groups in Singapore in particular. I decided to make Singapore my base because Singapore is an amazingly rich place uh, for Christian organizations and Christian churches. Uh, it in part because so many of these organizations were thrown out of China after World War II. They had to go somewhere, and some went to Hong Kong, and some went to Singapore. So I I looked very broadly, um, but I found myself kind of troubled by the charismatic Christians who I was encountering. Charismatic Christianity was very popular in the 90s. And in particular, there was a movement called the Spiritual Warfare Movement that originated in America, which I have written about. Um, I did things like attend a four four class uh, seminar series at one of the major churches on uh, cast, casting out demons. <laughs> and uh, the final the final class involved everyone coming up to the altar and um, their demons being exercised, except they weren't really demons. They were the God of mercy, goddess of mercy and the God of prosperity and all the traditional deities. So I kind of got a little bit unhappy with this. I actually (laughs) kind of went on a campaign to persuade Singapore Christian leaders that this was not such a tactful thing to do, to demonize the the spirit, you know, the deities of other religions. So I don't think I made myself too popular in some quarters. Um, 
So from there, I decided maybe I should just focus on the brethren because they weren't too involved in this sort of thing. But also, I realized that anthropologists were paying a lot of attention to Pentecostal and charismatic Christians and not really looking at the um, churches that were more churches of heritage that had very long history. I mean, the brethren I was meeting in Singapore, they were for fourth generation Christians. And that very long history has been almost completely forgotten by historians of Christianity. Uh, Similarly, in in Penang, when I finally started digging into the history, I could trace uh, Te Pai Lian's lineage right back to 1819 in the London Missionary Society. But the mission kind of changed identity and changed um, control from one group to another and and the links in that narrative just got lost so the book is partly about that kind of forgetting Uh, a lot of churches i mean in the third and fourth parts of the book i look at all the different churches that came out of the brethren movement and taking the model of the local church they innovated and created uh, new kinds of local churches that that had their roots in the brethren but which um uh, claimed a certain independence and difference at the same time. So I'm very interested in that kind of discon- what I call discontinuous continuity. And I think that um, Christians, in a way, because they focus so much on denominations, they've kind of, in a way, um, often chosen forgetting over remembering. And that's very much what I found when I looked at the history of the charismatic Church of Penang, everybody and the Church of Singapore. Everyone recognized the long history of connection um but the the links were broken mm. in so some ways in some ways this is a great example of of deep deep context and deep description isn't it uh your book and the, the, the metaphor of circulation of course really speaks to the way in which these different influences are coming together and producing new kinds of things you mentioned just now gene the london missionary society or the lms and that becomes a very important part of the story as you reconstruct it doesn't it um, in the beginning of Protestant mission, or not perhaps not quite the beginning, but certainly the very early days of Protestant mission in this part of the world. Can you tell us something about the London Missionary Society and perhaps some of the achievements of, of the missionaries who were involved in that? Uh, well, the London Missionary Society was, of course, one of the main missionary groups. I think they were founded around 1799 and in part under Moravian influence. I actually just finished a paper in which I went more deeply into the history of Moravian influence on the founding of the British Brethren. We'll put that aside for the moment. But the Moravians had... Um, started missions in the New World, in Newfoundland and in the West Indies. And also in England, they had settlements and they published accounts of the work that they did um, that really excited British Christians and kind of swung them towards the idea that they too should be doing missions. So once they were able to do so in 1813, I believe, there was a change in the way that the East India Company uh, worked with evangelical Christians. Uh, The London Missionary Society missionaries uh, took off for Southeast Asia. And they went there in part because they could not go to China. And there were lots of immigrant Chinese in Southeast Asia So they started their work of learning Chinese language and translating the Bible in part um, in cities like Penang and Singapore, which were uh, colonial port cities that were established by agents of the East India Company. Um, So there were a few surprises when I did this research, and one of them was that um, the missionaries in part were there for not just to convert the natives, but also to um, provide a church for nonconforming 
Christians because they themselves were nonconformists. They were not Anglican. And one thread that runs through my book is the constant rivalry between the Anglicans and the nonconformist missionaries as they kind of um, each attempted to kind of carve out a space for themselves in the European community and with um, people like uh, sailors and soldiers who passed through. Um, but what their contributions were, uh, I think the main one was probably education. So they did establish schools, uh, some of which have endured. Um, however, one of the um, complications of the London Missionary Society legacy in Southeast Asia was that as soon as China opened in 1843, they just pulled up stakes and took off, um, <laughs> taking with them a lot of property that people in Penang and Singapore actually felt belonged to them. In the case of Penang, they took the, the communion service to Amoy, the silver communion service, which was a source of much consternation. Um, this, the outcome of their departure was actually different, though, in Penang and Singapore. In Penang, there were still schoolhouses and students who had signed contracts. So what happened was that um, they found an independent missionary to come in and take over the schools. And then the widow of an LMS missionary, uh, Maria Tarn Dyer, uh, returned after she was widowed and actually married that missionary, and they continued the schools um, until her death. He then married another female missionary who'd been working in Borneo, who's a pretty remarkable person, and they continued the schools for a while. Um, so the education, I think, was an important contribution. Um, unfortunately, it was cut short, though, because the London Missionary Society decided to sell the mission property in 1867. And the brethren by then were working there as independent missionaries with their own funding. Um, but they pretty much got kicked out and only managed to hold on to a very small piece of land that a missionary had bought for his wife's school. Um, but the school was half built on her land and half built on the mission, on the London Missionary Society land. And so, um, finally a long battle ensued that resulted with the brethren rescuing one small piece of land on which to build their mission. So I don't know if I've answered your question. Well, it's, it's great, Jean. So the, the LMS are operating. Um, they give way to some ind more independently minded missionaries, and then there's there's these other missionary agencies and mission missions present and working in the same area. William Chalmers Burns is is working away. Alexander Grant, C can you tell us something about these these individuals? Okay, so William Chalmers Burns is actually one of the most fascinating characters of the 19th century in Christianity. Um, he was actually a major revivalist in Scotland and in Canada. He spent two years in Canada um, before he went to China as the first missionary for the English Presbyterian Mission. Um, he was a revivalist and apparently also very gifted at uh, languages. So he sparked a revival in a village in Fujian province that actually gave rise to a very important church, independent Chinese Christian church, um, that itself was quite evangelical and went out and proselytized in their area. So this was actually very important because immigrants from that community went to Southeast Asia and they went there as leaders and evangelists. And they very much established a very um, almost, you might say, charismatic and revivalist form of Christianity as being one of the most important forms of Christianity among Chinese Christians. So he had 
he had a few rivals. I think one can imagine, you know, at first when he went to China, he was like, oh, no one's listening to me. Nobody's getting excited. I'm just not reaching anyone. It's just not at all like it was in Scotland or Canada. Um, but then he had his effects. So there are Christians today in, in Singapore, for example, who see him as the, the um, founder of their churches in, in Southeast Asia and elsewhere. Um, but he, in turn, he one of his converts in this this town where they had the Betria uh, revival um, actually went to Singapore as the main um, Chinese evangelist for a while um, as part of a kind of uh, interdenominational cooperative attempt to revive uh, a mission that that had not existed for a while. There had not been any outreach to Chinese immigrants for a while in Singapore when he was sent there. Um, however, he became discontented with the arrangement, which involved a cooperation between the Presbyterians and the Anglicans, and finally ended up becoming independent. Um, in the meantime, another of the of William Thomas Burns' co-workers in Fujian, um, Alexander Grant, was... Yeah, Alexander Grant was the... Um, main missionary in Singapore for a number of years for the Brethren, but he actually has a very complicated history. And I think that he his life actually illustrates very well one of the points that I'm trying to make in the book, which is that people moved from organization to organization and place to place, and often the memory gets lost when they go from one to another. So if you read about the history of the Presbyterian mission in China, Alexander Grant is mentioned, but nothing is said about what happened to him after he left for Southeast Asia. And similarly, if you read about the Brethren history of Alexander Grant, um, very little is said about his Presbyterian roots. In any case, he went to Amoy to work in the English Presbyterian mission. He was originally from Scotland, from Aberdeen, if I'm not mistaken. And he, his father had been a Presbyterian mission and I think had joined the Free Presbyterian Church when the, um, uh, when the disruption occurred. In any case, he, he went to Amoy where he ended up becoming a co-worker with uh, William Chalmers Burns. They worked for a while in uh, a town that had been the site of a revival and massive conversions of Betria. And he had as a co-worker Tan Sibu, who also went to Singapore um, as an evangelist. In any case, um, Alexander Grant was sent by the Amoy mission to Singapore, where he was supposed to work on launching a new mission um, effort. What I've discovered, though, is that the Anglicans also dispatched someone to be head of that new mission effort who had a Cambridge degree, but absolutely no experience in Asia. And one imagines, I imagine that Alexander Grant got there and said, well, I've spent two years in China and I know Chinese language and I think I know more than you do. And he just took off. So he went to Penang and joined um, Chapman, a Brethren missionary who was very newly arrived in 1860, who was himself a revivalist. And they worked together uh, for a number of years until that event happened that I described where the London Missionary Society sold the mission property and all the missionaries had to leave. So at that point, he went to Singapore and, and the, there was a kind of a local church formed by Europeans. Um, and they employed him as their missionary when they built a new gospel hall and also recruited Tan Sibu to, to join them together mm. with his Chinese followers. 
So the, the community begins to grow, doesn't it? There's some local conversions. And then there's a new range of influences coming down from mainland China, isn't there? Uh, in the form of the local church movement, headed up by a man called Watchman Nee. So we're now 1920s or thereabouts, aren't we? Can you tell us something about, about how that develops and what impact that makes in Penang and Singapore? Watchman Nee is a very important figure in the history of Chinese Christianity, and it's considered by many that he launched a lo local church movement that was probably the first in China to have no missionary involvement. So that was very much his approach, that he wanted his churches to be independent. Um, he had started off... Uh, in working in conjunction with other evangelists, Leyland and Wilson Wong, um, who remained very closely connected to um, Robert Joffrey and the Christian and Missionary Alliance and also the Brethren. Um, but Watchman Nee chose a path of independence. Um, he also had some connections, though, with the closed brethren. I don't know if um, your listeners will know the difference between the open and closed brethren, <laughs> but the brethren that I'm writing about in the book are from a wing of the brethren movement that are evangelical. They're quite different from the closed brethren who, by and large, are not evangelical. Um, this wing of the brethren movement is associated with uh, J.N. Darby, who is a very uh, important figure in 19th century Christian history. He basically spread his theology to North America, where it became the foundation of American fundamentalist um, teachings. However, the Open Brethren were evangelical, and um, again, they, their churches formed the basis of the uh, missionary movement in Southeast Asia that I describe in the book. Anyway, so Watchman Nee was contacted by the Closed Brethren when they visited uh, Shanghai, and they invited him to go on a tour um, to North America, I think New York, Vancouver, and also London. Um, however, he crossed with them um, because he wanted to interact with non um, closed brethren. He wanted to, to be more um, free in his associations. So he finally chose a path of independence from them as well. Um, but Watchman Nee became very famous because he actually, drawing on the writings of many brethren authors and, and other uh, British Christian authors, um, he wrote his own theology of the local church. Um, he also had it translated into English so that the missionaries could read it. And he um, um, widely, widely promoted his teachings. So, for example, he spoke at the Keswick Convention um, as an invited speaker one year. So, uh, again, it's a little known fact, I find, that uh, in in church history. So, um, so Watchman Nee, actually, before he did any of this, he went to, to Southeast Asia with his mother and visited a, a community called Sitiawan, which is not far from Penang, the, the town that I'm writing my history of, and um, claimed to have founded the first local church in, in uh, Southeast Asia, in the world. Um, in fact, there were a number of independent local churches in Southeast Asia at this time, uh, but this church does date its founding to 1925, and they count Watchman Nee as as, as their founder. Um, he also sent out some agents to Southeast Asia who established uh, assemblies, local assemblies, and the local church movement came to be quite um, quite strong in many different forms. Um, 
the missionaries respected it, but I mean, one of the one of the threads of discussion in the in the book is the question of why the missionaries were still there two hundred years after you know, Christianity had been established and, and long after there were very well qualified Asian Christians to lead um, churches. And so Watchman E. really spearheaded the critique of the um, Western missionary and really promoted the idea of autonomy. So how did all of these independent local churches relate to one another, Jean? You've got more European-influenced brethren-type assemblies You've got more Chinese-influenced Watchman Nee-type local churches. And and then in the 1960s, we've got the emergence of a new kind of spirituality, a much more charismatic spirituality, which, as you pointed out earlier in our conversation, has the ability to um, to, to, to really contextualise itself within traditional Chinese culture. So how, how, do, how do all of these things work together? How, how does the circulation begin to mix at this point in the story? Uh, well, I think that the political events often play a large role in the way that um, things develop. So, you know, in the 1930s in China, you had Chiang Kai-shek and his wife, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, actually promoting uh, new forms of social activism that were very much influenced by Christianity and calling on the Christians for their support. And at the end of World War II, it really looked as if Christianity um, might end up being a very important force in Chinese society. Um, instead, with the communist revolution, you had people fleeing and going around the world. So I think one important phase of Christian circulations had to do with that political event, uh, which ended up pushing Chinese out into the world, um, Chinese Christians in many different countries, not only Southeast Asia, but also North America, Australia, um, etc. And I think because of the development of technologies of travel and communication, um, those that diaspora was ever increasingly able to um, maintain connections. So, the revivalism of the 30s was um, promoted by the fact that there was good uh, sea travel communication and, and air travel. Um, but by the 1960s and 1970s, uh, the Chinese Christians really were very global in their activities and connections. So going back to a maybe smaller screen um, on this on this question, uh, going back to Singapore and Penang, I think what you had was a situation where increasingly Chinese, starting in the 1930s, the Chinese Christians in those two cities had interactions with revivalists coming from China, coming from other parts of the world, and introducing perhaps new ideas about how Christianity ought to be interpreted and practiced. Um, but they maintain network connections without necessarily compromising their affiliations. So actually, Watchman Nee decided that it was okay to interact with the brethren. He first announced them as a denomination, and then he said, well, maybe they were a local church after all. Um, and so he had really, you know, good connections and relationships. Uh, he got, he got donations from Christians in Penang and Singapore. Uh, similarly with the, uh, 
other evangelists who I described, Leyland and Wilson Wong, um, they actually lived in Southeast Asia for a number of years. They were from China, um, but they developed missions in Southeast Asia. I should mention that Leyland Wong for, and uh, together with an American mission, uh, Canadian American missionary, Robert Joffrey, um, established the uh, Chinese and Foreign Missionary Alliance, which was an evangelical group that sent Chinese missionaries um, throughout Southeast Asia. So they had actually quite a large number of, so that was a completely, not only was it a local church, it was an indigenous mission that uh, was sending Chinese missionaries to uh, visit independent Chinese churches throughout Southeast Asia. So I think, again, this is something that historians have not paid very much attention to. Um, I think the reason for that is that the, the church history often gets his, written as a history of denominations, and all of these movements and circulations were happening across boundaries. Um, so if I could just make a methodological comment, in order to write this history, I had to work in multiple archives. It wasn't enough. And I found the same people moving through all these different <laughs> these different groups um, as they sought funding for their projects and sought allies for their for their work. Mm. Well, Jean, I could talk to you about this for hours and hopefully one day I'll get the chance at a conference to do so. That um, This book is just packed full of fascinating vignettes. But well, all of that within this much broader sweep of circulation and exchange and mutual influence that, that really drives forward so much of the religious history of this part of the world. Jean, thank you so much for your time today, uh, for coming on to the show to talk about the book, and thank you for writing it. Um, before we wind up, can you tell us what you are working on at the moment? Well... I have always been prone to juggling different projects. Um, so I am, I did remove a chapter from the book because it was overly long on uh, female education. So I am working that into an article right now. Uh, but I also am working on a book based on a research project that I did between uh, 2002 and 2009 on religious and cultural pilgrimage from Southeast Asia to a very famous Taoist pilgrimage site, Wudong Mountain uh, in China. Um, and I always felt my research wasn't really good enough. I know I didn't have the kind of resources I had for the Brethren book, um, but I've decided it's okay. <laughs> it will just be... <laughs> It would just be maybe a more personal and subjective account um, of this rather amazing place. Um, and then finally, I've been doing a research project on with my graduate students on contemporary Chinese tea culture, which is actually almost a form of spirituality or religion in modern China. So I just finished an article on a tea, a black tea called Jinjun Mei, um, that sells for extraordinary prices. It's made out of just the tea buds of a very high mountain tea in a very particular environment, and it is probably one of the world's most expensive teas. So I just have uh, written a paper on the invention and promotion of that tea, which That's, is a very modern history. That sounds fascinating. Well, Jean, thank sure. you so much for your time today, and thanks for writing this book, Christian Circulations, Global Christianity in the Local Church in Penang and Singapore, 1819-2000, to 2000, just published by uh, National University of Singapore Press, 2020. Um, it's been great talking to you, and um, thank you so much for, for doing this. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.